Well, you know, hope is uh, a profoundly powerful thing to possess. In fact, there really is nothing else like it. Uh, because of hope, there have been people throughout history who have refused to give up when facing the most insurmountable obstacles and the result of that hope working in their lives in so many cases is nothing short of miraculous. There's a great book titled Endurance, which is the true story of the expedition of Sir Ernest Shackleton and his 27 crew members to the Antarctic in uh, 1914, where after five months at sea making their way toward the South Pole, their ship became trapped in pack ice in the Weddell Sea off the coast of Antarctica. And while their ship was being crushed by the ice, Shackleton and his men were drifting northwest on the ocean, camped out on the ice floe for the next 10 months. 10 months drifting aimlessly on pack ice after abandoning their ship while it and their supplies were being destroyed by the crushing ice. It is truly an incredible story of survival, but it's an even greater story about hope because Shackleton never lost hope. He never gave up, and because he never gave up, ultimately he and a handful of his men, I think another four or five men, sailed in a lifeboat 850 miles across the South Atlantic's heaviest seas to a remote outpost where not only were they rescued, but ultimately his entire crew, all 27 men, were rescued. Think about it, over a year at sea, stranded on pack ice for 10 months of that time with all hope of survival seemingly lost, and yet Shackleton refused to lose even one man. He was the picture of strength and patience, endurance and wisdom. Everything that was needed for their survival, Shackleton possessed. Why? Because he never gave up hope. One of his crew members referred to him as the greatest leader that ever came on God's earth, bar none. In fact, when another crew member was interviewed later when asked how he compared Shackleton to the other most famous explorers of the time, uh, Robert Falcon Scott and Roald Amundsen, the crew member replied, For scientific leadership, give me Scott. For swift and efficient travel, Amundsen. But when you are in a hopeless situation, when there seems no way out, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. You see, you can be a resourceful and talented and skillful and even determined person in this life, and yet when trouble comes, if you lose hope, none of those other qualities will matter. Hope was the difference between Shackleton and so many others before him and since, those who lost their hope and then gave up, because without hope, there's no reason to continue. But when you have hope, well, then there's no reason to give up. I'll tell you, because of hope, I've seen marriages that were all but lost, now thriving. Because of hope, I know people who've lost nearly everything they've owned, but never gave up, and now they have more than they ever did before. Listen, hope, uh, hope helps people to overcome some of the greatest adversities in this world. And, and listen, that's just hope for this life. Right? You see, as Christians, our hope is not in this world. 
Our hope is in Jesus Christ and that hope that we have in him is an eternal hope. Our hope transcends this world and the temporary afflictions that come with it. In fact, our hope has overcome death itself. And so we have no good reason, no excuse to stop fighting for our marriages. And no matter how hard it is, we've, we've no excuse to stop fighting for our families. Whatever the challenges are that may arise between us as brothers and sisters in this family of God, listen, we have no excuse to stop fighting for each other. Right? As many people who are hurting in this world and in our community around us, we have no excuse to stop fighting for those who cannot fight for themselves, the, the poor, the afflicted, the widowed, the orphaned, the unborn. We have no excuse to stop fighting for the souls of men and women who do not yet know Jesus Christ. Because the hope that we have in him is a hope that is greater than every single obstacle before us and every single battle that we are fighting and every single challenge we may ever face. And I'll tell you something else about hope. It changes you. It changes you because it creates capacity inside of you for all the things that you need in order to be able to keep fighting for all the things that you should. Okay, when you are devoid of hope, when you have no hope, you don't have the capacity to grow in faith, in patience, strength, wisdom, resolve, because you close yourself off to all of that. But when you're full of hope, you open yourself up to growing in all of those areas. That's what hope does inside of us. It increases our capacity to be able to grow in all the ways we need to when the challenges of life come. Right? So listen, because I know that some of you are facing some real battles in your lives today. And we can pray for direction and strength and wisdom and resolve to see our way through those battles. But listen, if, if you've already given up hope, Praying for those other things that you need won't get you very far. If you don't embrace the hope that is available to you in Christ first, you will never find the faith that you need to keep fighting. If you don't allow hope to build in you, you won't be able to build your spiritual strength or wisdom because giving up hope actually shrinks your capacity for growth. Okay, you'll never have the determination that you need to see your way through life's biggest challenges if you've already surrendered your hope. And yet when you're full of hope, you open yourself up to a world of possibilities and then, then your capacity to grow in all of those areas that you need to grow in increases exponentially. I'm telling you, hope can be such a powerful force in your life that it will change the entire trajectory of your life if you will allow it to. And so before, before we ask God for direction, before we ask God for strength or wisdom or resolve to face life's challenges, first we need to ask ourselves, do I even believe do I honestly have the hope within me that God is able to do what needs to be done in my life or my spouse's life or my family's uh, lives or in that other person's life, right? To get us where we need to be as a married couple or as a family or as a church or whatever the need is. 
Do I actually have the hope that God is able to do what needs to be done in us to see us through this situation or circumstance or struggle or even a tragedy? Do I actually have the hope that God is able to provide for my need when the need is utterly overwhelming? Do I actually have the hope that God is bigger than anything I will ever face in this life? Because look, if the answer is no, if deep down the despair you're experiencing has ever, uh, overshadowed the hope that you have in Christ for this life and the next, well then hope, hope is the very first thing that we need to talk about. Because you won't get very far without it. And interestingly, in our story today, when confronted by a local church pastor about some of the problems that were threatening to tear apart one of the first century churches, the Apostle Paul addresses uh, these issues in the church by first talking to the believers there about hope. It's the very first thing he talks about, and we'll see that as we embark on this new sermon series today, working our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And so, just a little backstory here to set the stage. Colossae was located on a major and very important highway uh, in the Lycus River Valley in southwest Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey, about 120 miles east of Ephesus. And although it was a small agrarian uh, or agricultural town in the first century, it was known as the most important and very great city throughout the entire region in centuries before. It was a thriving center uh, for the textile industry. In fact, there was a, a particular type of high-quality dark red wool uh, that was manufactured there. It was known as Colossian wool. And even as far back as uh, 440 B.C., the great historian Herodotus wrote about Xerxes stopping at the great city, he said, of Colossae during the Persian Wars. And so uh, quite a bit of history there. And because Colossae was on a major highway between other cities like Ephesus and Laodicea and Heropolis, there was by the first century AD quite a varied um, mixture of cultural and social and ethnic and religious influences there. And so as a result... Colossae had become known for an obsession with magic and the occult, mostly uh, among the Gentiles, and this letter was probably predominantly written with a Gentile audience in mind, uh, and there are many clues of that throughout the letter, not the least of which being uh, there are really no explicit Old Testament quotations or explicit references to the Mosaic Law which you would expect in a letter addressed to a Jewish audience. However, there are many references in the letter, as we'll see, to religious rules and observances in the letter which strongly resemble and suggest the presence and influence of Jewish religious practices making their way uh, in an unhealthy sense, along with the pagan practices of the local culture all mixed together into the life of the church. And we'll see that in the coming chapters particularly. The point being, uh, there's evidence that there may have been a significant Jewish population there in Colossae putting pressure on the fledgling Christian church to observe the Old Testament ceremonial law as a means of salvation. And in support of that, 
we have, according to Flavius Josephus, he was a, a great uh, first century Jewish historian. He said the Seleucid ruler Antiochus III or Antiochus the Great had actually settled 2,000 Jewish families in that area back in uh, 213 BC. We also have from the letters of Cicero, the famous Roman philosopher, uh, references to Roman seizures of large amounts of money from the Jews there in the first century BC. And so, uh, although Colossae would typically be thought of as a Gentile city, there's significant evidence to suggest that there was a lot of diversity there, both from Gentiles and Jews, uh, in that town in the first century AD, which most likely had a significant impact on the church there. And that's well, all of that is what has precipitated this letter to the Colossian Christians by Paul. And speaking of Paul, he was not the one who actually planted the church in Colossae to begin with. Do you know that? In fact, Paul had never even been there or met the Colossian Christians. There was a local man named Epaphras who probably traveled to Ephesus to hear Paul preach when Paul was leading the church there in Ephesus for two years at a school, uh, the school of Tyrannus during Paul's third missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 19 where Luke tells us that over that uh, two-year period of time of Paul preaching in Ephesus, all the residents of Asia, which of course would include Colossae, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, Acts 19.10. And so this man, Epaphras, from Colossae, having accepted the gospel message in Ephesus, then goes back to his hometown and establishes a church there. And, and all was going well until the local cultural influences began seeping into the doctrine of the gospel within the church. And so Epaphras then travels to Rome where Paul is imprisoned at this point in order to seek Paul's counsel on how to address these serious issues within the church because the false teaching and pagan influences were beginning to take hold and actually tear apart the local church there. And so out of that visit, between Epaphras and Paul comes this letter in about A.D. 62, the same time that he wrote uh, his letters to the Ephesians and to Philemon. So uh, keeping all of that in mind, all right, let's jump into the letter and we'll cover most of chapter 1 today, uh, but not all of it. We'll finish the rest of it next week. So we'll start this morning by reading uh, Colossians 1, the first eight verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit." So after a brief introduction, Paul expresses his gratitude for these fellow believers in Colossae uh, whom he's never met and uh, for 
a church that he's never visited, which first of all is a testament to the unity that we as fellow believers can genuinely feel toward one another, even those in other parts of the world uh, whom we've never met before. And so Paul talks about their faith in Christ and the love that they have for their fellow believers, and then he explains that all of that exists because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Verse 5, in other words, we can have faith in Christ and love for one another and even for those we've never met before because of the common hope that we as followers of Christ share in Christ, right? Which again is a hope, he says, that is laid up for us in heaven, meaning there's nothing on this earth or in hell below that can steal that hope from us. In fact, in fact, the only thing that can ever cause you to lose all hope in this life is you. There's no power in hell that is powerful enough to rob you of the hope that you have in Christ and there is no circumstance in this life that can ever overwhelm the hope that is available to you in Christ. The only way to lose hope is by letting go of it. But you see, if you hold on to hope, You can walk through anything because hope gives you the capacity to receive and to become everything that you need to receive and to become, to be able to walk through anything. And so in the next six verses, Paul lays out for these Christians in Colossae what should be happening in their own lives because of the hope that they all share in Christ, which will enable them, he says, to deal with these issues that are currently trying to tear apart the church there. And what makes his argument about hope so persuasive, at least in part, is the fact that the guy who's writing the letter The guy who's encouraging them in the hope that we all have in Christ, that same guy happens to be at the very moment he's writing this letter to them about hope, that same guy is rotting in a Roman prison. Paul is writing this letter from prison, and by the way, uh, first century Roman prison was nothing like 21st century American prison. Okay, in the first century, typically the prisons didn't provide for the prisoners' daily needs. So any clothing or blankets or food that you had, it only came if friends or family from the outside were willing to come and bring you something, which was usually a great risk to them, not only because of bandits who would often rob them on the way, but because you were then associating yourself with a criminal, putting yourself at risk of arrest with the local authorities because of your ties to this prisoner. And then, uh, to be more specific, the, the Mamertine prison in Rome where Paul was being held, it was known at the time as the Tullianum Dungeon, was a particularly dark and cold and wet place where prisoners were basically treated as if they were already dead. They were lowered down through a hole in the floor into a dark stone room underground with the only other opening other than the hole they were lowered through being a a doorway into the underground sewer. So you can imagine lying there in a room made of stone underground perpetually damp with the constant stench of sewer, almost total darkness and punishing cold 24 hours a day. Day 
after day with the only support coming from the family or friends who were brave enough to associate with you by bringing you some food or maybe a blanket or some clothing. And on top of all of that, in Paul's case, he was awaiting and fully expecting execution. It seems pretty hopeless to me. This is Paul's daily existence as he pens this letter to the Colossians, which he opens up by talking about hope. It is nothing short of astounding, if you really think about it, right? If, if anyone had reason to feel hopeless based on their circumstances, surely it was Paul, and yet he writes to them about the hope that they share, and as we'll see, out of that hope, he expects them to receive all that they need to face this current struggle that they find themselves in. And in chapter 2, his instruction, uh, as we'll see, uh, becomes very uh, practical, whereas in chapter 1, it's much more theological. But uh, we don't want to miss this first part, okay? Because it is the foundation for everything else in the letter. And as we'll see, it all starts with hope. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul starts this next section of the letter with and so, which is kind of like saying therefore. In other words, uh, what I'm about to say is because of something I just said, which takes us right back to verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because of hope, Paul says, I can now share the rest of this with you, okay? So everything that Paul is now telling them that should be theirs, everything they're going to need in order to deal with what is happening in the local church, it's all based on the hope that is laid up for them in heaven. And so, Paul says, because of hope, I pray that you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. I pray that you will know what God's will for your life is, particularly in this difficult situation that you happen to be facing right now. And honestly, isn't that what we all want to know? Right? When we find ourselves facing uh, something really difficult, we want to know what God's will is. We want to know what we should do. And Paul says, because of the hope that we have, I'm able to pray that you will be filled with that knowledge the knowledge of God's will that I know you want and that I know you need. But listen, make no mistake about it, if the Colossians had no hope, there would be no reason for Paul to pray. Right? If you've let go of all hope in your difficult situation, praying for God's will for you in that situation isn't going to do you much good because honestly, what good is it to know God's will if you don't have the hope in Him to be able to carry out that will in your life? Why does it even matter what His will for your life is if you've lost all hope in Him? You see, before we pray for the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, we should really ask ourselves first, do I really have hope in Jesus Christ to begin with? I mean, the kind of hope that faith and love depend on, according to verse 4. The kind of hope that says, no matter what His will is for my life, I know that I can walk it out because of the hope that I have in Him. 
It's the kind of hope that says, even, even if the gates of hell come against me, I will not be shaken because of my hope is in someone greater than anything that could ever come against me. Because listen, when God reveals his will to you, I'm telling you, you will absolutely need all of your hope to be found in him if you have any chance of fulfilling his will for your life at all. So many Christians are always asking, what is God's will for my life? And to be sure, that's a good question for us to ask. But look, if, you're, if your prayer for God to reveal his will for your life comes with conditions, then your hope is actually in your plans. Not in Jesus Christ and his plans. Okay, if you're, if you're ready to know God's will, as long as it includes living where you want to and doing what you want to and only loving the people you really want to and only serving where you really want to and only giving what you really want to, then your hope is in what you want, not in what he wills. Which means your prayers to know God's will are a waste of time because you cannot live out His will when your hope is firmly embedded in your own will. I'm certain it wasn't Paul's desire to spend the end of his life wasting away in a Roman prison. But that was God's will for Paul's life and out of it we have the prison epistles. Four of the books of the New Testament including the one we're studying now. These are writings that have introduced scores of people to Christ changing their lives and eternal destinies of countless human souls for hundreds of years. Now, what is more important, the fact that Paul had to suffer for a time or the multitudes of human souls who are not suffering in hell for an eternity precisely because Paul was willing to suffer for a time? And of course, the reason Paul was willing to do whatever God had called him to do was because Paul's hope was in God and his plan, not in Paul and his own plan. You see, often, I don't think we have any idea what we're asking when we pray to know God's will. And that's okay, as long as our hope is so firmly founded in Him that no matter what the answer to that prayer is, we know He will see us through it, even if it doesn't look like we thought it would or wanted it to. And when you get to that place, look, when you, when you get to that place in your life, the point where you're truly willing to do anything that God calls you to because all of your hope is in Him. In that moment, there is no better prayer for you to pray than, Lord, may I be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, because when you get to that place in your life, look out world. Because I'm telling you, there's nothing that can stop a follower of Jesus Christ whose hope is found in Christ alone. Let's keep reading. We'll, we'll go back to verse 9 again and we'll read through verse 10 because they build on each other. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
So in verse 9, Paul says, And so, because of the hope that we have in Christ, I'm praying that you will know God's will in this difficult situation so that you will handle it, verse 10, in a way that is pleasing to him. He says to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And the word walk there uh, in the ancient Greek language is the word peripateo. It refers to how a person actually conducts their entire life. In fact, uh, the longer phrase, so as to walk, in verse 10 was a common Jewish idiom, a, a Jewish saying that pictured a person's lifestyle as a road that one traveled along, okay? So in other words, it's, it's one thing to know what God's will is. That's good. But then you have to actually go out and do it. Paul says you have to walk it out. And because we have hope in Christ, Paul says, I not only pray that you will know what God's will is, but I also pray that you will walk it out. That you will bear fruit, he says, in every good work. So in other words, the more we learn about Jesus Christ, the more we should be acting like Jesus Christ. Okay, if our hope is truly in Christ, then the more we learn about him, the more our knowledge of him increases, then the more our behavior should change. The more it should become like his. And yet, if it doesn't, if, if when faced with difficult circumstances in life, we behave exactly the same as those who do not know Christ at all, then maybe our hope isn't in Christ after all. And unfortunately, look... This isn't some kind of rarity in the church today. All it takes is a cursory viewing of social media and you will quickly find professing believers behaving exactly the same as unbelievers when confronted with a difficult circumstance or some troubling information, whether it's about life or politics or religion or social issues or just about anything else. The truth is it's very disheartening to see professing Christians hopelessly melting down on a public forum when life isn't going their way or someone is being disagreeable toward them. And um, listen, I'm not talking about righteous anger or godly sorrow for the current state of our culture. No, I'm talking about godless behavior, witless, thoughtless uncontrolled rants with not even a hint of wisdom or self-control or Christ-likeness. What is our hope actually in? Is our hope in politics? Is our hope in government? Is our hope in social policies? Is our hope in our favorite team? Don't answer that. <laughs> is our hope in winning the next argument no our hope is in Jesus Christ the unchanging unwavering incorruptible all powerful all knowing all present perfectly holy and righteous sovereign king who is laid up for us in heaven a hope that cannot be taken away by any government or any political power or any social policy or any difficult circumstance or any argument leveled against us. So honestly, why? 
Why do we come hopelessly unglued when the world acts like the world? Our hope isn't in this world. But sometimes you wouldn't know it based on how we act. The author of Hebrews wrote, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to what? To hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. Okay, when your hope is truly in Jesus Christ, it becomes an anchor for your soul so that no matter how strong the winds of change may blow in your life, hope is never lost because in Christ, our hope cannot be shaken. By the way, when your soul is anchored in the hope of Christ, it shows up in your behavior as you learn more and more about him. Which is what all of this uh, upcountry church stuff happens to be all about. When we come here to learn more about Jesus Christ so that we will be changed. So that our behavior is different, more like Christ when we leave here than it was when we came in. But if our behavior is not changing, the more we increase in knowledge of him, then, then we've anchored our hope in something else. Which always comes to light the moment adversity shows up at our doorstep. And we all know that it will from time to time. That's when you can tell what a person's hope is truly anchored in. And so Paul was simply saying to the Colossians, if your hope is truly anchored in Christ which I believe it is, then I'm praying that your behavior, the fruit that you produce in your life will reflect the character of Christ as you confront these difficult circumstances in the church. Okay? Let's keep going. We'll go back to verse 9 one more time and read through verse 11. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So again, Paul says, and so, because of the hope that we have in Christ, I'm praying that you will know God's will in this difficult situation so that you will handle it in a way that is pleasing to him. And by the way, the only way you're going to be able to do that is by, verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. In other words, increased knowledge Knowing more about Jesus Christ is something you're going to need in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord when troubles come your way. But listen, it is not the only thing you're going to need. You're also going to have to be strengthened with His power so that you can patiently endure this trial that you happen to be facing. Paul says, because of the hope that we have in Christ, I pray that you will patiently and joyfully endure through strength 
And the strength part of that equation is the key here, okay? As Christians, we don't endure trials through feeble resignation. We don't just try to hang on to Jesus for dear life, just wishing somehow maybe we'll make it through our trials. No, Paul says it is through strength that we endure. In fact, he says we can endure the worst of trials with patience and even with joy when we're strengthened by the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And of course, who more qualified than Paul to make that claim? Right? Remember where he is and what he's experiencing as he writes this letter. Paul knew better than anyone, save Jesus himself, what it meant to patiently and joyfully endure hardship because of the strength that comes from Christ through the hope that we have in him. The problem for many of us today is we're far more interested in what God can do for us than we are in what he wants to do in us. And as a result, we have a tendency to try and avoid every kind of uh, trial possible. We ask God to deliver us from it rather than to help us endure through it with patience and joy so that he can accomplish in us what he's trying to accomplish, which is how, by the way, he makes us better, more mature, more effective, stronger disciples. St. Augustine once said, the one who shows patience prefers to endure evil so as not to commit it rather than to commit evil so as not to endure it. You see, sometimes God will deliver you from a trial without having to walk through it, but more often than not, we have to walk through those trials in life and we're supposed to walk through them in a manner worthy of the Lord, which means doing so patiently and even joyfully as we are strengthened with all power, listen to this part, according to His glorious might. His glorious might. There's, there's nothing weak about that. There's absolutely no sense of hopeless resignation in your trials when you're being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Paul was saying that because we have this hope in Christ, we have an unlimited supply of power available to strengthen us in our most difficult seasons of life. So listen, tap into that. Tap into his glorious might. And when you do, the trial may not get easier, but you will find that you can endure it with patience and, yes, even with joy. All right, Paul knew that what these Colossian Christians were about to confront in their church and community was not going to be easy. And he also knew that they were going to have to walk through it. They couldn't pretend the problem didn't exist and hope that it would go away on its own. And to be sure, a feeble attempt to deal with the false teaching that was occurring in the church would not be a sufficient remedy because the opposition, as we'll see in the coming chapters, was bearing down on these Colossian Christians. And so Paul says, go on and face it. Face these issues head on, but don't do it in weakness. No, you face your trials as you are strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And then you'll not only be able to endure it, but you'll be able to do so patiently and even joyfully. As Paul continues, verses 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. You see, it all comes back to hope. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ. A hope that transcends this world and the temporary afflictions that come with it. And it's a hope that changes us from the inside out as your capacity to do God's will for your life. Bearing good fruit all along the way, even when that means enduring trials. Your capacity for all of that increases exponentially when you allow the hope that you have in Christ to anchor your very soul. But to be sure, it all starts with hope. Okay, do you want to see your marriage restored? Well, first you have to have hope that Jesus Christ is able to restore your marriage. There's not much point in asking for his will in your life on the matter if you don't have any hope in him to begin with. Do you want to see your family restored? Do you want to see your relationships restored? Are you facing something in your life that is bearing down on you and you're not sure how you're going to get through it? Is there a need in your life so great that you cannot envision a way for that need to ever be met? Do you need healing in your body today or strength for the journey that you're on or joy to fill your soul while you're on it? I'm telling you, it all starts with hope. Well, great. Pastor Rob, thank you. That all sounds wonderful. Well, what if I don't have the hope that I need for all of that? Right? How do, how do I put all my hope in Christ instead of these other things in my life? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the answer is, you need a revelation of exactly who Jesus Christ actually is. Because once you understand how infinitely superior Jesus Christ is to anything and everything else, only then will you understand why he is actually the only thing worth putting your hope in to begin with. Amen. See, if you need hope in your life again, there's only one place to find it. If you're experiencing despair over circumstances in your life today that has overshadowed the hope that is available to you in Christ, I'm telling you there's only one place to go. If your hurt is greater than your hope, if your fear has overtaken your hope, if unforgiveness won't allow you to hope, if your circumstances have left you without any hope, there is only one place to turn, only one source of hope, and he is the one who never tires, who never fails, who never falters, who never gives up, and who will never leave you or forsake you. Paul knew it well because he had a revelation of that source of hope. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. 
He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present your holy, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the revelation that we must all have if we're to put our hope in Christ. You see, you must understand that there is no other worthy of putting our hope in. There is no other capable of providing the hope that we need. In fact, there is no other who even has the ability to offer us real hope when circumstances in our lives are otherwise hopeless. No, Jesus Christ is our only hope. He is the anchor for our souls and he is able to do in and for us everything that is needed to see us through life's most difficult challenges. And it is all because of hope. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer?